Wind and Tide. Hi, we're Family 360, and we're in the last months of our first year. Season one. And as we head into season two this January, feedback from our listeners would be so appreciated. So appreciated. What are you liking? What episodes have you enjoyed? What topics or questions would you like us to explore? And anything else you'd like us to know. And when you leave us a comment, you'll be linked to a beautiful solo Christmas album to stream on the music service of your choice. Created by Roy for those quiet evenings when your kids are in bed and you just want to exhale. Our gift to you. This album is honestly a number one favorite in my family. You will love it. (laughs) Thanks for that, Rachel. It's true. It's an amazing album. (laughs) So pop onto our website. Family360podcast.com. Yes, just go to the question tab and you'll find lots of space for comments and questions. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome to Family 360, a podcast of conversations exploring life together, parenting, and all the ways we are family to each other. I'm Rachel Cram, educator and founding director of Wind and Tide Education Community. I'm Roy Salmon, audio producer and founder of Whitewater Studios, and together we're the hosts of Family 360, interviewing specialists, artists, and storytellers. And now for this week's episode. This week we're with Ted Levitt, an author, an addiction counselor, a youth and family therapist, and a specialist in ADHD. Attention, deficit, and hyperactivity disorder. Yeah. His work is built upon years of study, practice, and personal experience. Diagnosed with ADHD in his 30s, Ted came to see himself and his clients through new eyes. Mm. In his work with both clients and medical professionals, he highlights the challenge of distinguishing between problem behaviors and mental health problems. He's a very kind, compassionate, and knowledgeable counselor, Mm. I think because he relies both from years of study and his own experience as a problem child. So let's start the conversation. Welcome to to Family Family 360. 360. Ted, thank you so much for being in the studio today. Glad to be here. I'm so interested for this conversation, partly because I think I'm going to learn a lot as well. In preparation for this interview, I listened to your TEDx talk, which is fabulous. Thank you. And I actually have a lot of ADHD that runs through my family as well. So I'm here as a learner. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the club. (laughs) Welcome to the club. Yeah. It's a beautiful club. Yes, it is. I'm going to start today with a question that we typically open with in our interviews. Aristotle stated, give me a child at seven and I will show you the adult. So Ted, Mm. is there a story or an experience from your childhood that has shaped the man that you are today? Yeah, I, I mean, there's so many stories, Mm -hmm. right? I'm a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And so I remember all sorts of things, but it's interesting that the quote, uh, talks about the age of seven, because that's the story that rises to the top for me. I was probably seven or eight. I think it was in grade two. There was this little girl that moved into our school, and she was just odd. I mean, as a seven-year-old, you don't, you can't articulate, but she would just kind of sit a lot of the time staring, uh, either staring at you, through you, at nothing. She sort of had her mouth hanging open. She had a runny nose a lot of the time. And uh, I don't know, I was drawn to her. Like, she looks like she needs a friend. Hmm. So I said to my mom, I'm going to try and be a friend to this girl. So I tried really hard. I, I talked to her. I tried to include her and ask her questions. And I, I got nothing. And I remember one time seeing her 
in town with her dad, and I just got this weird vibe. And I just had this feeling like something not good was happening there. And then they moved, and I never saw or heard from her again. And I always felt kind of haunted by that, Mm -hmm. especially as I got older and learned about the world and things that happen in the world. And I thought, man, that poor little girl was all by herself and nobody was helping her. And I don't know if she ever did get help. I don't know if she was, you know, had some developmental difficulties. I'm sure there was some trauma going on there. So that's kind of me. I was always the person to notice that person Mm. in the room. I think that probably shaped me, those kinds of experiences of seeing people that were hurting and wanting them to not hurt. That's essentially how I ended up doing what I'm doing. I realized, oh, okay, I I see that that this is where I'm supposed to be, working with those people. Mm. And when I say those people, I mean, we're all those people at times, right, where Mm. we're the person sitting on the edge of the room. So I would say that's probably the one that stands out the most for Mm for me. Thanks for describing that. It's amazing how early compassion or empathy manifests itself and that it led you to this career. Exactly. Now you started off as an addiction counselor, is that correct? That was your first career in the area of counseling. Yeah. Were there any big takeaways? I know you shifted and we'll get into that. Were there any experiences or understandings that you gained through that particular form of counseling? Oh, yeah, like so many, so mm-hmm. many. It was such a, a good place to learn on the job. One that served me really well over the years has been to not take lying personally. Uh, when people Lying from the client. Lying from the client or your child or whoever. Mm-hmm. So I was working as the intake worker. I, was, I ran the group for the guys in their first two weeks. And a guy came to me one evening and he said, oh, my grandma's dying. She's in the hospital. She was my caregiver growing up. I would just feel terrible if she died without me having a chance to say goodbye to her. So I need to discharge from the program early and go in to see her. And I said, well, okay, that sounds like a legit reason to do it. So we bought him a bus ticket and took him down to the bus stop and dropped him off. When I got back to the treatment center, a couple of clients pulled me aside and they said, no, his grandma's not dying. He wants to use drugs. And I had always hated being lied to, which is ironic, given how much I lied to other people as a kid. Um, So I was like, what? I was ready to get in the van, drive back down there, take the ticket back. How dare you take advantage of my my sympathy? And then I realized he didn't pick that story because he thought I was stupid enough to believe it, which was always a trigger for me, people thinking that I was dumb. I just realized, okay, people lie because that's what they know how to do. Their brain has told them that is your best strategy in this scenario, so let's do it. And I learned to not take it personally. And sometimes when they knew that I knew that they were lying, but didn't really care that they were lying, they would feel safe enough to like open up a bit more. Hmm. They would then tell me the truth. Hmm. Because often, you know, you say to kids, well, if you do the thing that you shouldn't do, that's one thing. But if you lie about it, that's when I'm going to be mad. But if I'm not even mad then, it becomes very safe to tell you the truth.
Well, I think what you're describing is the complexity mm-hmm. of people. And I think related to this, in your work, you've been looking into the difference between problem behaviors and mental health problems. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, as you reflect on stories like this, what are you discovering about that difference or lack of difference? Well, that is a source of frustration for me, I would say, uh, sitting in meetings with people who, in my opinion, ought to know better, who just cannot stop themselves from delineating mental health problems from behavior problems. Uh, you know, Are you being, talking about therapists or are you talking about clients here? Therapists. Okay. Therapists, psychiatrists, uh, mental health professionals, people mm-hmm. whose job it is to know the difference saying we don't have enough you know, beds in the, the child and adolescent psych unit because we have all these behavior kids coming in. And me saying, well, behavior problems are mental health problems. And then they say, yeah, I know, but, but, but when they're not, I said, but they are always. Well, this comes back to teachers in schools too, right? There's right. a lot of conversations right now about all the behavior problems that are in right. schools. And I think this reflects directly on that conversation as well and your attitude towards that very much affects how you relate to that individual person absolutely yeah so a lot of the presentations that i do start with this slide that says eefb on it eefb that's an acronym yeah Mm -hmm. so there's an event that happens we have an explanation for the event which gives rise to a feeling about the event which gives rise to a behavioral response to the event. Event. Explanation. Feeling. feeling. Behavior. Okay. So you have a child who's saying, no, when it's time to work on math. No, it's stupid. If your explanation is that this is a power struggle, then my feeling, I I feel like this person's trying to take power from me, which gives rise to either a fight or a flight response. If my explanation of this behavior is that this child feels overwhelmed, insecure, afraid, I would hope that my feeling would be more compassionate and my behavioral response would reflect that. Which are mental health concerns, right? Right. Yeah. So I think part of the hang-up is what does mental illness mean, right? Mm -hmm. And people think of the person mumbling to themselves walking down the street or suicidal depression, but it's a... It's a spectrum just like physical health. There's nobody who I know who's in perfect physical condition. And why can't the same be true with our mental health? You know, we all slide up and down that spectrum day to day based on things that happen. And it comes back to kids do well if they can. So if a person is having a behavior problem, I always say, like, nobody in their right mind does that. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to do badly. Nobody wants to get in trouble. I'm kind of a stickler for words when they'll say, well, he likes to argue about everything or he wants to make other people annoyed. Really, does he want to? Or is he feeling compelled to do that due to some unresolved thing that's going on in his life? It's a perception of choice, I think, right? Of of feeling that there is a choice that somebody's making as opposed to it is beyond choice. Like the child saying that math is stupid. Mm -hmm. It's a reflex of something internal or external It's an unconscious choice. Right. And that's what neuroscience research has shown over and over, is that our default setting is reflex. And that makes people uncomfortable, I think, because then how can I blame other people for stuff? So now my power is given up if I recognize that we're all reflexive creatures. For better, for worse, we all make unconscious choices. Yeah. Now that's our default setting. 
through mindful practice, you can learn to recognize your reflexes and override them. So we're not doomed to stay that way. But, but that takes a lot of conscious choice and it practice. It does, right. Mm-hmm. And often it takes a lot of painful experiences to wake mm-hmm. us up to the reality that maybe we're not quite as in control mm-hmm. as we thought we were. Now, before we keep going forward, I'm wondering if we can back up a little bit. You mentioned the trigger for you of people thinking you were dumb. And your book, Teddy Hit Me, which is a great title, by the way. Thank you. um, Covers reasons for this and the confirmed discovery of your own mental health challenges when you were in your 30s. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if we can look at that. Because I think often when you are a therapist or you're, when you're working with people, the more that you can personally relate, the more effective you can be. 100%. Can you tell me about that experience? What happened for you that brought that to your attention in your 30s? What was the journey? So in terms of the diagnosis? Or yeah, like, what, what made you be okay. diagnosed at 30? So, and, what, and what did that do for you oh man. as an adult? How did that change? How did that shift things for you? Or did it? Oh, yeah. Like changed my life entirely, I would How say. So? You were at a work conference on mental health, I believe. Yes. So um, it was with Dr. Gabor Mate, who mm-hmm. wrote Scattered Minds. And he had just written a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts about addiction. And so it was all about attachment trauma and brain development and the need for comfort. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this explains everything. So I loved everything that he was saying. So, of course, I bought all of his books. And one of them was Scattered Minds, a book about ADD is what he called it when it was written. And I thought, oh, I think a lot of my clients probably deal with this. Maybe it's a good way to get to know them. And so I started reading it and I was just like from the first pages, I was like, what the heck? This is my life. Like Mm. there were lines in there that are things I've said many, many times to other people. Have I said like, what would be an example of that? So my wife one time, I was kind of like storming around the house and she said, you you need to figure out what is stressing you out. I said, I know what is stressing me out. I'm stressing me out, but I can't get away from me is the problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's one of the things he talks about, you know, about being terrified of being left alone with your own mind and talks about reading a book in the bank lineup because he can't stand. And I was like, oh man, like... Read a book in the bank lineup because he can't stand what? Being alone with his own thoughts. Mm. He can't, it's, 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 it's almost a visceral experience. The, what you could describe as impatience would not fully capture the lived experience of standing in a lineup that you can't make go faster, mm. but you have to be in. And so you so just you have to, have have to wait. Yeah. You have an itch that cannot be scratched. And did you think everybody felt like that? Or had you not really thought about it in detail? I hadn't ever really thought about it. I mean, nobody had ever attached any kind of a a label to me except depression. And that was just like a one-time comment when I was about 18, 19 years old. That when they said it, I was like, oh, that would actually explain a lot. Hmm. And they weren't wrong, but the the underlying source still wasn't there. So I So you're reading this book yeah. and and you're thinking, Oh my goodness, this relates to me. Yeah. So I'm like, I have this is me. So I went to my mom and I said, 
hey, you got to check this out. Like, this explains everything. And of course, in a very ADHD way, I kept lending the book out to people before I actually finished reading it because I was so excited by what I was reading. I was like, mm. you got to check this out. And my mom called me about a week later and she said, is it okay if I put a little um, pencil mark in the margin next to things that I can relate to or that make sense? I said, sure. She said, I was, I was writing out lines that I liked and then I realized I'm basically writing the whole book. Mm. So I thought it's probably better if I just make a little dot. I'm like, see, right? Was I wrong? So back then I was very anti-medication. I was like, oh, medication, just learn to think differently and plan and all that kind of stuff. But it, it, that didn't make any difference for me. Mm. A big part of the treatment for ADHD is knowing what that is. Like, knowing oh, what? Like, oh, that's why I do all that stuff mm. or don't do all that stuff. Mm. So that was a huge boon right off the top, just understanding that. What What is the that? Like, when you say you understand that's why I don't do this, that's why I don't do that, mm -hmm. what... What did that book tell you was the reason for that? Uh, not enough dopamine in the prefrontal cortex of my brain. Mm -hmm. It actually had nothing to do with my character mm -hmm. or my desire or will or any of that stuff that had always been attached to, laziness, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. It was, which later became very apparent when I started to take the medication. So what pushed me to actually be officially diagnosed was a client who had been through the treatment center many, many times. He was in my uh, colleague's group at the time, and it's just a classic case of ADHD. You know, legs bouncing all the time, talking all the time. He knew all the answers to all the questions. He could write out the plan with his eyes closed, but he could not follow through on any of it, and he could not stay clean for more than a month. He'd come in for three months in the program, leave, relapse almost right away, come back, do it again. And so his last time through... The counselor and I were, were pretty good friends and we're talking a lot about my ADHD realizations. And he's like, huh, I wonder if that's what's going on with him. And so we were actually able to get him to a psychiatrist who prescribed Dexedrin for him, ADHD medication, and totally different guy. Hmm. He graduated and stayed clean and stayed clean. And, and you know, last hmm. I heard, it had been seven years. And this is a guy who couldn't get 30 days. So what that medication was giving him was the dopamine hit to his brain that he needed. Yeah, that he kept finding in, in crystal meth. Ted, do you have a general statistic of the population of how many people are affected by ADHD. I know it's a very broad term right now. Yeah. It's a big spectrum term, but mm -hmm. do you have numbers? Do you have stats that address? It's, it's incredible how widely varied prevalence estimates are for ADHD. Mm -hmm. I've never seen one that rates it at higher than 10%. Mm -hmm. But prevalence estimates are always difficult because it's based on people seeking help. So many didn't make it into the stats. Right. So I tend to think that maybe the, all of those prevalence estimates are underestimates. I ask that because I think that, you know, in schools right now, we're hearing so much about the behavior problems, mm -hmm. as we talked about before. And, and, and I think something resonates within us to know, to feel like it's not always a choice, right. um, that it is perhaps a mental health problem. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at your child, for example, or your husband, in your wife's case, mm -hmm. you think, 
but I don't want to attribute mental health problems to this person because that doesn't fit the stereotype of what I right, think. Right. But there's so much self-esteem. There's so much potential. There's mm-hmm. so much capability that's lost with not Absolutely. being aware of the necessity of a dopamine hit to our brain. Yeah. Can you walk us through your growing up? What was school like for you? Um, so it's kind of like, you know, an athlete who's naturally athletic, they can get by on their talent, but when they get with other people who are also athletic, who work hard, then they kind of end up on the bench. Mm -hmm. So that was me in in elementary school. I could kind of wing it. I was very creative. I didn't get in a ton of trouble. My report cards were always, you know, Ted could do a lot better if he would apply himself. He could be a great student if he would only be more organized and a lot of last minute projects with my dad was helping me finish a lot of frustration um you know foot in the mouth saying the worst thing you could say oh man why did i say that those kinds of moments Mm -hmm. but i had lots of friends and was pretty well liked and then when i was i was going to grade eight there was a big uptick in what's required of a student in terms of self directedness, self-organization, self-regulation, essentially. So high school requires that. Yeah. Yeah. And elementary school, not so much. Mm -hmm. And so I really dropped off and was doing really badly in school. But nobody really thought anything of it because they could see that I was this smart kid. So I must just be lazy or not working hard or I was really depressed. And so that persisted till the end of grade 12, Mm -hmm. essentially. This underachievement... So what sort of things would your report card say? What were your teachers saying about you? It was a lot of the same stuff, just, you know, not organized, not handing stuff in, not paying attention, not applying himself, the classic one that 99% of ADHD people have on their report mm-hmm. cards, if they applied themselves or were less social, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And what were you thinking about yourself at that stage? Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, I just thought I was a, an idiot an inevitable disappointment, I guess. A lot of people say, well, you know, I'm hardest on myself or I'm disappointing myself. I I never felt like that because I didn't have expectations for myself. Mm -hmm. That's such a sad outlook on yourself. Yeah. You talk about there being symptoms of ADHD and symptoms because of ADHD. Is that kind of self-image a symptom? Yeah. Can, can you give the distinctions for each? Like, what are symptoms of ADHD? So things like getting bored really easily, even by things that were once interesting, starting really strong and kind of fading away, more big picture and not so much detail-oriented, so... I'm just sort of paraphrasing the the checklist, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe we can put a link to that checklist or the list itself on our website. Yeah. So what are other symptoms of ADHD? Um, fidgetiness, difficult times, staying seated. Although with adults, for the most part, we've learned to stay in our seat. So mm-hmm. I'll ask them, how often do you feel like getting up? Mm-hmm. Oh, constantly. Okay, so we mm-hmm. check that box. A very specific kind of memory, difficulty in what's called working memory, which is remembering what you're supposed to be doing. So if you're doing a task and you're pulled away from it, can you go back to where you left and pick up where you left off? You know, I need you to do A, B, and C. 
they can maybe remember A, but the rest of it kind of gets blurry. And difficulty learning from mistakes, so a lot of repeated mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, how, why do we keep having this conversation kind of stuff? Um, emotional up and down, mood swings. We also tend to hyper-focus on things that naturally produce dopamine in our brain. We do have a chronically low level of dopamine, which is a reward chemical, but our brain also doesn't regulate it very well. And so when something comes along that produces dopamine and you get locked into it and you just, you know, sort of laser tractor beam focus. What would be examples of that? So as a musician, I had a little studio in my house and I would say to my wife, oh, it's 11 o'clock at night. I'm just going to go down to my studio really quickly and just work on this this course. There's this one thing I just have to record really quickly. And then she'd come down at four o'clock in the morning and say, uh, you have to be up in three hours. Do you think maybe you should come to bed? Oh, what time is it? Like it just no time had gone by. I, I felt refreshed as anything. Mm. You just get so engrossed in it that it's like there is no world around mm. you. Uh, whether it's reading books or playing video games or kids building Lego. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things actually that interferes with diagnosis sometimes is that they'll say, well, you can play video games. You can focus when he's playing video games or... Because that's giving the dopamine hit. Right. Okay. So, but that's where we come back to this idea of choice, right? Mm-hmm. They think, well, you can pay attention when you want to. Mm-hmm. It's not about wanting to. It's about whatever the activity is eliciting that from me, not me deciding to give it to the activity. Mm-hmm. And so... Those are the main symptoms. There's signs. Um, like external signs? Yeah. Symptoms that are more obvious to other people, right? Yeah, which is like the bouncing leg and the interrupting all the time, and difficulty waiting for your turn. And then there's symptoms which are more internal. So like a lot of racing thoughts and obsessive thinking. When I was diagnosed, the psychiatrist said a lot of my symptoms were subjective. And at first I thought he meant like, a matter of opinion, but then he meant only I experience them mm. because they're not obvious to the outside mm. world, which would explain a lot of why it took so long. So these are symptoms of ADHD. Before we look at symptoms because of ADHD, can I just ask you, you talked about getting bored, yeah. even with activities that were really interesting to you. Mm-hmm. Is that when you're bored, is that because you have, have actually lost interest or is it because you can't maintain the interest? I guess for me, those are two different feelings. Mm. <clears throat> so, so dopamine's role, one of its many roles in your body is, is a reward chemical. And so if you have a chronically low level of it, then things that are rewarding for other people, let's say a 9 out of 10 for you are a 5 out of 10. And so uh, I use the, the phrase a lot, you know, it doesn't hit the spot. So there are lots of things that I am interested in and I want to try and learn about. But when I do them, it's kind of like eh, underwhelming. Mm. But I am genuinely interested in them. So that's probably what you call boredom, right? Is that things just don't do it for me. So you don't continue to pursue. Right. Yeah. There's no payoff for it. So it appears probably like you're starting a lot of things but not completing them. Right. And when Not you start, on. you're like all in. Like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the violin. And you watch a thousand videos on teaching yourself violin. And you do all this research on buying violins. Yeah. And you pick up yeah. the violin and you can't make a note. And you're like, I'll oh, forget it. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Mandolin. 
that's what I need. I need a mandolin. It's closer to a guitar, so, I, so you switch. So it's hard, it's hard to say that, that you know, you're not interested or you're not motivated, but there just isn't a payoff for that interest and motivation. And so things... The result doesn't come fast enough. Yeah, things kind of fade out quickly. Mm. Now, lack of focus, that can play a role too, because a lot of times something like playing the violin or learning to draw requires persistence and follow through before you get the payoff. Yeah. And if you don't have the ability to stick with it, you don't get the payoff. Even if there was a payoff at the end of the, the rainbow, you don't get to the end of the rainbow, so you never get to really experience it, which leads to a lot of learned helplessness. Like, what's the point in trying to do something because it's probably just going to disappoint you anyway? So we are going to pause here in this conversation between Rachel and ADHD counselor and family therapist, Ted Levitt. But there's more to come. The rest of the interview will be our next release in part two. When we're editing and producing our episodes, mm-hmm. it always feels a little awkward, a little ungracious when we know we're going to a part two, when we suddenly cut our guests off like, mid-interview. Like we've interrupted them or yeah, something. Yeah, like we just hear, hear with Ted. But sometimes the conversation goes into unanticipated places. Well, they typically do. And they need more time. Yeah. So we chose to stop here because you and Ted had just finished talking about symptoms of ADHD and we're about to talk about symptoms because of ADHD. Which is very interesting. So here's a little snippet from part two of our next episode with Ted Levitt. The biggest symptom because of ADHD is the shame. All of the things that arise from that, depression, anxiety, self-harm, addiction, risky behavior, all of those are coming generally from the need for belonging or soothing the pain of not belonging. So please join us for this informative conversation with Ted Levitt in part two. On Family 360. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe. Rate the show, leave a comment, and tell a friend. Each Family 360 episode ends with music inspired by the words of our guest. You heard bits and pieces of this music during this interview. Here's the song, Distracted. And you can find it in our resource section for every episode or wherever you stream music.
I'm Rachel Cram. I'm Roy Salmond. And thank you so much for listening to Family 360. 360. To continue these conversations, find us at Family 360 on our website, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'd love to journey with you.